Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And we have Emily Jashinsky once a month. Uh, I'm going to drop that and every time now, Emily. Uh, but Emily is a senior fellow with us at uh, IWF. She is also the culture editor over at The Federalist. Uh, she has a show um, on Crystal and Sager's Breaking Points called Counterpoints with Ryan Grimm. So you can hear her. Is it every Wednesday? Every Wednesday. That's Every right. Wednesday, you can hear her take on whatever the news uh, is that Wednesday. Um, but this Wednesday, she's here uh, with me at high noon. So, Emily, welcome back. Thanks for having me in this. Um, we have some some politics stuff to get to, DeSantis, the border. Uh, but I actually want to start with, with a, a little cultural tidbit that is bouncing around my feed right now. Um, Brian Johnson, who is uh, this Silicon Valley guy who has made a crap ton of money and has decided that he's going to dedicate the rest of his life um, to the project of not dying before we hit the singularity. You can tell in the way I'm describing this that this is a large part of what I have a problem with, the Silicon Valley mentality. Um, but I just this, there's this clip of him bouncing around, and I think it's worth discussing exactly because I think so many people in Silicon Valley and then increasingly of our elite class think this actually sounds reasonable. So I'm going to play it and get your get your thoughts. Well, the last moment where like things kind of have been how they have been, but they're about to change radically. And in this new future, we can't predict what's going to happen. We no longer have the ability. And so we're living in a zeroth world. And so Gen Zero is a group of multi-ethnic, multinational people who rise up and they say, we are willing to courageously step into the future and we're willing to divorce or open to divorce from ourselves all human norms, all human customs, all human thought, and we're willing to say we're wide open about everything, absolute blank slate. So, Emily, what do you think about uh, Generation Zero? You and I could probably dissect that clip for three hours because he packed so much nonsense into it. But it, I, I was listening to it earlier today before we taped, actually not even knowing this was sort of bouncing around in your head as well. But it does sound uh, like a lot of the people who came after Nietzsche. And we've talked about this before. But to me... I, maybe it's because I was just listening to uh, Rest is History earlier today and their conversation about the the actual like worldview and uh, sort of belief system that Hitler and a lot of Nazis had. But this idea that we are going to throw off all human norms uh, and start from a basically a blank slate and invent our own morality. And of course, you know, the Nazis were looking back to Rome and, and looking back to uh, what they saw as like the great Aryan race of the past, whatever. But uh, this idea that we're at a blank slate, that because of technology, that because of increasing knowledge, you know, maybe it's Darwin in the 1930s uh, to people who are thinking of these things. It sounds like eugenics or it sounds like what led to eugenics uh, and, and not just in Germany. It sounds like what led to the eugenics of people like Margaret Sanger. Um, and I think the problem in us would be underestimating people like Brian Johnson because Brian Johnson is listening to the counter arguments. Uh, Brian Johnson has a hubris that that tells him he understands all of the best arguments against his own argument. He's he's not a head in the sand Hillary Clinton person where you know Hillary Clinton would never 
click on a Federalist link, that's for damn sure. Um, but, you know, he has the sort of hubris to confront what he sees as the top, toughest arguments against him. So it's not that he he's not sort of listening. And it's not that, you know, some of these techno-optimists, I'm thinking like Mark Andreessen, aren't listening. Um, but it is that they think that they're too good to kind of worry about, that, that, that they're ideas are, are so strong that they don't really have to worry about the opposition. And again, and as like, that's a really frightening, uh, it's like what you're talking about, the Nazis confronting the cult of Mount Sinai, right? That um, the 10 commandments had, you know, corrupt the Jews had used the 10 commandments to corrupt the human race essentially into kindness <laughs> <laughs> and like miscegenation and like all of these things that they thought were weakening the race. This is laying the groundwork. It, it may sound novel and invigorating right now because it's true. It's fertile soil for these types of ideas to spring forth from because so many things are being deconstructed and, and so many things are becoming possible by new technologies. Uh, but thrusting full steam ahead into anti-humanism is horrifying. Um, truly, truly horrifying. And, and maybe you could you could put Hitler again in that camp because he was so, uh, or, or out of that camp because he was so pro-human that it was all about the will to power. And that's the most, you know, that's man, fallen man's most uh, base instinct is to just survive and, and uh, preserve the race and et cetera, et cetera, as, as they saw it. But uh, on another level, it, it leads to, to pain and suffering and unhappiness. And uh, I think uh, old BJ here is going to the same spot. <laughs> what really just blows my mind about the way that he's talking is he thinks he's the first one to think this way. Um, and I don't know how much of that is a, a, a kind of, um, and you and I talked about this on your Federalist Radio podcast, but a, a kind of um, sort of background hum of not just being irreligious or atheistic, but of being post-religious, of not uh, taking seriously any, that that civilizations of the past may have, uh, so have asked some of the same questions and may have had answers um, or at least offered answers that are worth considering in modern life. Um, there's just none of that. Um, and so it's just, it comes off as, as ridiculous because Anybody who knows a little bit about either human, like, history of, of, of civilizations, even of the 20th century, as you're pointing out, I mean, there's certainly a, a sort of ring of Pol Pot to this in a certain way, um, but also like a his, an intellectual history, right? Uh, and he's not, it's not that he's advancing these ideas in an understanding and, and trying to, for example, distinguish himself from Pol Pot and say, no, like, this is different and here is why, is that he doesn't even know that he's repeating things right um and that that is truly terrifying in, in somebody who purports to be an elite right um and especially somebody who wants to have such a large hand in guiding human affairs into the future um but but just to steal man his argument a little much better than than he does here let's do um, it so I mean, you you like to talk a lot about uh hypernovelty right about the speed and rapidity of of um technological change surpassing human speed of adaptation that we're a very adaptable species um we can adapt to a lot of things but that this the rate of change essentially it's not that the technological change itself which is in such to some extent nothing new um 
but the rate of change has gotten so quick that human affairs or civilization cannot really keep up with that. So in other words, is there something different about this moment? Is it possible that like technological advancement actually is making, I know we talk a lot about human beings becoming obsolete vis-a-vis AI or whatever else, but this is a slightly different question. Is it making human nature obsolete? Um, Are we going to change so radically in response to these technologies that maybe what he's saying here has a little bit of a point, right? That, that a lot of the um, premises that seem similar, we have all of these wildly different ways that man has arranged civilization going back, let's say even to the Romans, forget about before that, right? Um, Some things that are are massively in contradiction with each other, polygamous societies, monogamous societies, right? Christian societies, pagan societies, all these societies have functioned in different ways, different parts of the world, radically different cultures. Um, And the way that we make sense of all of that is to pull out a few threads that say, okay, you know, human beings can be very different in very different cultures and times, but here's a few things that are at least conservatives, the constrained view would say, here's a few things that haven't changed about our nature. Everything else around it might change. It might be applied in different ways to different problems, different challenges, different instabilities, different opportunities, but these things don't change. When you start to talk about transhumanism or, um, you know, some of the ways that come naturally, I think, to uh, a lot of Silicon Valley people to talk about these questions, at what point, is there a point where we can actually make any observations, can we make conservatism obsolete in that sense? How do you mean conservatism? Like the this sort of fundamental conservation of uh, the good, the true, the beautiful? I, I guess, I, yeah, I, I should define that because I have this, this to me seems a very simple definition of being conservative versus being um, either leftist or radical, uh, depending on how you, but to me, I, I really liked, I really like Sowell's constrained versus unconstrained view that conservatives have the constrained view. And I think basically conservatives are those people who think that there is something stable about human nature that cannot be transformed. Uh, so that's a specific sense in which I, I meant, just, can it make conservatism obsolete? In other words, can technology change us as human beings so dramatically that conservative observations about human nature that have held, even though we've had all these different societies all over, you know, throughout time and and all over the globe, there's still been some things that have held steady about human nature. Can we change, can we transform even those things? Are, Are we getting to a point where he's arguing even those things are, um, no longer stable and we need to operate differently as though human beings really can be transformed, even in our natures. He uh, acknowledges a very true premise or the very true premise to his entire argument in that interview, which is that we literally know nothing about what's going to come. And he says, because of that, we must shed the the sort of burdensome scruples um, that have, have governed societies since you know time immemorial and what's interesting about that is it's kind of a self-defeating argument that we know nothing so we should uh, absolutely embrace this one prescription uh and to the to the point that you're making here this is like the easiest question in the world to answer as a believing christian because 
man is fallen and if man is programming the technology of the future if 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 man is fundamentally if human nature um informs the technology ahead it can't be you know perfected it can't we can't perfect human nature human nature cannot itself perfect human nature because it's human uh, it's it's fundamentally human uh, it, it, so that's a really i think obvious problem i don't think any technology is is going to correct the impulse uh of sin or the the sort of the uh, the the will the the selfishness of man and and what we've discovered if anything in a hyper connected uh, world where everyone essentially lives next to each other and does politics next to each other because the time that it talks or that it takes for me in DC to talk to you in New York or the time it takes to see the destruction on October 7th I mean some of that we were basically seeing happen live from all different corners of the globe and so one thing that we've learned is is even that these sort of western standards that we've developed uh, to moderate human behavior uh, if if men were angels, no government would be necessary. Here's how we're going to deal with it. That these sort of things are are more important than ever before because we're not in in tight knit villages. Um, Hyper novelty has sort of taken us, ripped us uh, really quickly away from those tight knit villages, and and we have to be governed uh, by the these sort of standards that temper our uh, our will, our our sinful impulses, our selfishness. Uh, rather than sort of throwing off these shackles and descending into this Nietzschean anarchy, um, that's like to me more than anything that's horrifying because now man can uh, do so much destruction so quickly, um, and and our impulses are not tempered um, in a that sort of. If you look at the anarchy that is the internet right now, in some places that are still kind of unregulated. Uh, you see exactly what it means. It doesn't mean that those spaces should be regulated. It just means that people have massive power to, uh, you know, spread legitimate disinformation um, or like, hack. We've seen horrifying hacks um, of of you know, national security proportions of people's livelihoods, their their. Uh, bank accounts, all of this stuff can happen really quickly with a click of a few buttons. Uh, so I think if anything, hyper novelty has, has put us in a situation where we uh, need to hold fast uh, to these sort of standards, both of freedom and, uh, you know, the restrictions of, of certain freedoms for the sake of preserving the other freedoms, not to sound like a, a, the FBI. I don't mean it that way. I mean it in the, the sort of Madisonian sense. Yeah, there's there's sort of a, a failure to appreciate that things can always get worse, um, <laughs> which I guess is the great conservative <laughs> insight. Well, but it's um, it's the same thing with like if you look at Mark Andreessen, he is uh, now embracing this optimistic optimistic accelerationist um, worldview, and and he's he's sort of codified it, and uh, maybe codified is the wrong word, but he's he's sort of um, made it coherent. Uh, or, or attempted to make it into a coherent movement that is uh, a optimistic and b accelerationist. And unless your optimism, again, I'm just speaking as a Christian. Unless your optimism is in the eternal, there's really no reason for optimism on Earth. It's like saying stupid things as though the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. That is idiotic. <laughs> such a, a ridiculous line from somebody who's ordained, nonetheless. But um, again, I'm just speaking from from that perspective. And optimism 
to, to sort of embrace the cult of optimism right now is insane from my perspective. And I understand that they're right about some of the pessimism. I get that. And I think that's what's making it really powerful. Uh, at the same time, uh, a blind optimism um, is is rooted in an arrogance. And I think when you look at the writings, uh, and I really respect Mark Andreessen, I just think when you look at the writings of people in the um, accelerationist optimist space, uh, there's, a, there's a real arrogance to it that I, I don't think is well-founded. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I agree even sort of accelerationists on my own side who I uh, agree with their politics and the prescription is, well, just let, you know, let this regime collapse and uh, that's the only way in which we're going to be able to build something better. I Even that I I cringe away from. Um, it seems like, again, a failure to appreciate that things can always get worse. There is sort of a Tower of Babel feel to, to all of this. Um, but something specific you said, you said we can't get away from, like, we, we can't innovate around sin in uh, the crooked timber of humanity. And again, just to steel man this, like I, I actually agree with this worldview very much, but just to steel man this, is it possible that we can? I mean, if you think about something like Ozempic, um, which doesn't just uh, make people lose weight, it also stops them from biting their nails. It stops them from doom scrolling. So it does something to stop people who drink too much. It like has they cut back their drinking. Um there, it seems to do something to the mechanism of sort of self-destructive behaviors itself. Um, I mean, I'm absolutely convinced to your point about pessimism and and optimism being ill-founded. I'm absolutely convinced that we're going to discover this is like going to give everybody horrible stomach cancer or something. Um, <laughs> but uh, as of now, it looks like we have some data and that's almost more disturbing in itself. I guess the question is, even if we could innovate around sin, or people's bad behaviors or immoral behaviors even, um, you know, would would we it, through that completely lose our humanity as well? And maybe maybe to somebody like Brian Johnson, that sounds like just fine. He doesn't want to die either. He's trying not to die. So uh, anything related to our humanity and our frailty, you know, I guess to steel man this, like, why are we clinging to this, right? Why, why are we clinging to... Uh, and defining our humanity through our various flaws and sufferings. I think Ozempic is actually the perfect example for a couple of reasons. And and one of them is if you're taking it to get away from like gluttony um, and, and maybe even just thinking of that in a sense of gluttony as uh, not only something that can lead to health problems, but as a, a sin. Um, and let's say gluttony in this sense is something that Ozempic can actually sort of perfect as we were talking about, like, can technology in some ways actually like finally perfect human nature and allow us all to live in peace and harmony um, in, a, in a real utopian sense as they sort of have these discussions. Um, but again, I think that's a really good example. And, and one of the reasons is, are people taking Ozempic for material concerns to address material concerns? Or are they really taking it to address uh, the, the follies of gluttony, um, the in some ways material, but also spiritual follies of, of gluttony? And I would argue almost everyone who's taking Ozempic is doing it just simply to lose weight, look better. Um, as a, you know, and for some people, again, this is a very real medical treatment. I'm not talking about that. Um, on the other hand, I also think it's a good example of the band-aids that technology is allowing us to apply. So you sort of temporarily patch up a problem. Actually, even a better analogy is probably patching up, you know, holes in a boat, um, something like that. Because 
that's like another way that I see Ozempic is that is it making you healthier than uh, developing discipline? And again, I'm not like I'm not judging anybody because I think it's an amazing new medication. Um, but I'm just saying we all know objectively it would be best if we were able to sort of psychologically over time master a sense of self-discipline and work out and have a sort of daily lifestyle that mirrored the natural conditions that the human body, as Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying have documented in Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, that the human body is meant to live in, that optimizes human uh, health. Would it be better to sort of mirror that kind of hunter-gathering daily lifestyle uh, by by moving um, by, you know, working our, our muscles, by eating natural foods and, and enjoying sunlight, all of those different things. Um, it, would that be ideal? I think virtually everyone would say yes. Um, and so, again, these like temporary patches, um, what we're going to end up with, and Brian Johnson is the living embodiment of this, sadly, he does not look good for his age and his entire worldview is premised on looking young for his age and the exact embodiment of the patchwork solution to uh, the the problems of human nature. It, the, the physical embodiment of it is Brian Johnson, who looks like a patchwork and who has, who says when he stops treatment, uh, certain types of treatment for a couple of days, he will his aging accelerates rapidly. Then you need to uh, patch another Band-Aid on top of that and another patch on top of that. And uh, by the end of the day, you're this techno Frankenstein. And I don't think anyone would argue that that is actually better for your health and happiness. I mean, I think people do. They do. They do. I just that. mean any like sane person. <laughs> um, I don't know. There's also like this this loss, um, and this is probably something you absolutely can agree with, cannot agree with as a Christian. But like, I I think there would be a loss somehow if we were to strip sin from humanity, right? Like, how many genius? How many geniuses or artists, famous artists, had like well-balanced lives, free of uh, of self-destructive tendencies? Of like that, that those things sometimes spur people to great heights. And I can imagine a kind of middling world where everyone is free of these kinds of sufferings, or even of certain moral flaws. Right. Um, and I can imagine that being a worse world than the one we have. Um, like, think about, I think uh, the the sci-fi um, Firefly, so uh, the, the movie uh, that wraps it up and explains some things about the series because they cut it off early, is called Serenity. Um, and Zempic, for example, really, really reminded me of this. So uh, they they're terraforming planets. They, you know, it's a sci-fi. They put millions of people on this planet um and but to correct for the the messiness and chaos of human civilization and of human beings themselves they add something to the atmosphere basically to keep people calm right um to to like sort of to to lessen their aggressive instincts um and what they end up with is is a entire world of people who just don't see the point in exerting themselves to live um and just lie down and die they all starve to death they all die like they just lie down and go to sleep and 
are not interested in scratching out a life, right? That like messing with that very basic human instinct turns out to have enormous consequences. And I, I, that is what, what freaks me out about Ozempic because what you're saying would to me make more sense as an objection if Ozempic was merely taking the consequences. In other words, people were continuing to be gluttonous, but it wasn't showing up on their bodies, right? Um, but increasingly what it seems like is that Ozempic is uh, taking away the compulsion to eat. Um, and In terms of eating. Have, some people have that, you know, some people have that compulsion that comes out in gluttony and then they become very fat. Um, but it, it, it seems to have a similar effect on other compulsions. Okay. So well, I, I guess what, what would happen to, to Picasso if he took away his compulsions? Um, would, would we have, anyway, we're, we're, we're getting into very, very deep in a far water here, but I, I do think there is, there is a, there's this temptation to think that uh, because we are going through a massive uh, both economic and technological transformation period, uh, that therefore the past has nothing to teach us anymore. And that these canards about human nature, I can imagine Brian Johnson, you know, dismissing both of us and saying, well, these are, you know, these are just some of the preconceptions that generation zero needs to sweep away because right. uh, we are, you know, we're pr proceeding towards a singularity. <laughs> human, human beings themselves uh, will, will be very different uh, in 20 years and 50 years. Uh, he's constantly talking, by the way, about like what somebody 200 years from now will think of him versus what anyone thinks of him today. He's like obviously uh, very unconcerned that his attempt not to die is seems ridiculous to most people. Um, but uh, I don't know. Like <laughs> again, as a conservative, you look back and you realize people have thought this before. Like you're not the first, dude. You're not the first to think that there's this hard break in humanity coming and that you're going to be the one to be ahead of it. And we have a long line of people who have thought very similarly, of course, for different sets of circumstances and confronting different technologies and different societal upheavals. But we have a long record of people thinking more or less this, what you are thinking right now. And most of those people do not get remembered fondly in 200 years. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, again, I'm going to tug one more time at the Ozempic court just to say it's the that's I, I think what you're going where you're going with that is is super interesting, because to me, Brian Johnson would say, I assume, why are you assuming gluttony is bad? Why are you assuming um, that we can't sort of patch up all of the different you know health problems that come with obesity, diabetes and blah, 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 and sort of have this this Gnostic escape from the material bodily condition. Uh, this is, it sounds like, you know, you're living in, you're living in the year 2000 when I'm living in the year 4,000 and all of these preconceptions are to your point in us are totally irrelevant. Um, and you know, blah, blah, blah. But again, like the pro human take on that is our happiness is tied to these, these spiritual and material realities that will inform the construction of this new world order. Uh, and so back to the exempic example, um, if we keep, you know, I think if we keep pulling at the thread, um, are people, 
are people's compulsions going away? Sure. But to sort of paraphrase every girl on the on the Bachelor, are they going away for the right reasons? Um, are they sort of going in a direction that is is just uh, numbing uh, these these sort of spiritual concerns that that give them these compulsions? And for people, it's it's all kinds of different reasons. You know, people don't realize this, but my nails are chewed constantly to the bone and have been since I was not to the bone to the nub uh, and have been since I was like four years old. I've never stopped doing it. Um, except for briefly when COVID first started spreading, uh, and you know, <laughs> we were all terrified. Uh, but that didn't last super long, even though I wrote a piece about, about how for the it, wrong reasons. <laughs> yeah, it had finally been cured. Yeah, exactly. But that's what I'm saying. Like, it, is this actually curing the spiritual ailment that is pushing the compulsion, or is it just patching up and making helping you to ignore? Um, whatever sort of psychological, spiritual element it is, that no matter how much AI we have and no matter how much of our lives are transferred into the metaverse, uh, where we can look however we want, uh, no matter how much of that uh, we, we ultimately live in and around, um, you, you still aren't dealing with the, the uh, deeper spiritual element of it uh, just by taking Ozempic or whatever else. And it doesn't even have to technically be spiritual. Again, as a Christian, I, I gravitate and, and necessarily towards that. I'm just saying um, even psychologically, um, that's you're, you're still sort of patching up instead of dealing with the, the leak itself. Uh I mean, and and you you've uh, pointed this out a bunch of times um, in in various talks or speeches, but I think it it is a really important inside of yours, and I, th I think more people need to pick it up. It, it is remarkable. Like I'm trying to sit here thinking, how am I going to transfer this conversation to talking about you know the border and Ron DeSantis? Um, and and you you always point out like these things are totally orthogonal to our uh, to our politics, right? Um, it, it is like conducting politics essentially during the, you do start to get the feeling like conducting politics uh, during, in the middle of the industrial revolution, right? Um, where you will end up with a whole series of revolutions and upheavals that at the time you can't see yet. And you keep like conducting politics as though uh, it's very similar to what, what came before. And I, mean, I guess that that would be, the, the the softer version of Brian Johnson's point uh, that I I find plausible in this current moment is, but but yeah, like it, it seems like there's no way to to move from this topic to what's happening at our border. I have no no. There is though. There's such a good link, which is that uh, Ron DeSantis launched his campaign with David Sachs and Elon Musk. Um, and it, it sort of has been seen as the metaphor. And there's a reason that I think, you know, people like uh, David Sachs are attracted to people like Ron DeSantis and RFK Jr. And that people like, um, you know, uh, not just David Sachs, but like some of the other all in guys and some people like Elon Musk are suddenly questioning DEI um, or Bill Ackman is, you know, suddenly horrified by DEI I think in some ways it is because we've we've just patched ourselves up um and, and numbed ourselves to hyper novelty and some of the guys who were on the cutting edge of that you know Elon Musk who Ron DeSantis this like sort of uh traditional conservative 
and I mean conservative in the sort of social sense in this context, there's a reason why there was a partnership between Elon Musk, who just launched Neuralink. He says that the first uh, Neuralink was successfully implanted in a human, as we're taping this this week, uh, that he was attracted to Ron DeSantis. And I think Silicon Valley, your piece was so good in this on First Things. I think they're sort of flirting with and trying to reconcile some of what they've been on the cutting edge of um, by projecting it onto people like Ron DeSantis who are anti-woke because it, but they're not fully grasping you know why they share this this anti-woke impulse and I don't know and as if that was a an effective transition I'll let you be the <laughs> uh, a for effort um no I, I mean I actually see Ron DeSantis interestingly I see Ron DeSantis as kind of the last hope of traditional politics. And I mean that like in the capital P politics, not like his agenda is very much not what the Republican Party has been doing for 50 years. And I think that's why he's been successful. He's really made institutional warfare on the left, right, via de small d democratic politics in Florida. And I think he's done that really well. Uh, you can call it sort of, I think Chris Rufo also is very much in this mold. I think it's a very successful mode of politics, whatever one thinks about the Ron DeSantis campaign for president. Um, and it's it's kind of my preferred direction, but there's a bit of, um, there's almost like a bit of hopefulness or optimism that I'm not sure uh, is warranted that's built into that structure. Um, and I, I I hope it's warranted, um, but but it is actually just using fully using the political tools available in a liberal democracy, right? Um, as much as the left screeches about, you know, our norms and our democracy and everything, uh, the Ron DeSantis agenda and the things that Chris Rufo proposes are all ultimately working within what anybody in like 1958 or 1964 would have recognized as a liberal democracy. Um, and so in a sense, it's, it's like the most radical program that can be done to save us from the left within the current parameters of not just our like politics in terms of an Overton window, but in terms of our politics in terms of like the regime and the system itself. And I, the reason I, I hope that their bid succeeds and the reason that I, I I'm sad to see Ron DeSantis perform so poorly, I think objectively on the, on the national stage is because that program seems to me to be our last best hope for a resolution to the divisions in this country and increasingly in the, the GAE or the global American empire, because uh, we're exporting a lot of this. In the in the what in us the, the GAE Global yeah, American Empire you never heard this before I don't know how do you pronounce that though the <laughs> the what mm -hmm. <laughs> the GAE got it got it um <laughs> the online trolls know what we mean yeah no no what know what they're doing yeah um <laughs> no but like to me it seems like the last solution that's still it seems very radical to people like David David French and he's like on a tear about it being a liberal and blah 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 but it, but it actually isn't it's using the small d democratic power to do very much what the left did over the course of the last 50 to 70 years in our institutions right it is essentially removing um 
either removing the law that was was propping up a lot of what the left was doing, aggressively using appointments within various boards, aggressively using the power of the purse to advance, uh, forgive me for simplicity, but good values over bad, like a, a vision of the good that is directly oppositional to the left's. Um, but there's nothing that in that package that requires the total destruction of democracy, of some form of liberalism that would have been recognizable both to Thomas Jefferson and to people like right up until basically the 60s and 70s. Um, there's there's no need to be, quote unquote, post-liberal to enact the, the Ron DeSantis, Chris Rufo agenda, right? Um, and so I guess the, my hopes for that agenda, and which are lower than they, they have been because of the performance that Ron DeSantis put in, um, I see that very much as the last exit uh, off a route that we really, really don't want to go on, um, mm-hmm. where people have totally forgotten what it means when, for example, 75 million Trump supporters totally check out of politics and the political process as a legitimate way of resolving their differences and have no faith at all in any of the the democratic institutions, any of the government institutions. I mean, this is not, I'll put it this way, either it's going to be tyranny one way or it's going to be tyranny the other. If you get a a critical mass of people who no longer see the current regime as protective of them, their, their fundamental, most basic interests, not even things, abstract things like rights, but their most basic interests, like, I don't know, not to be robbed and have their, uh, their robbers go free uh, is a pretty basic one. Uh, anyway, I, I I don't see anything down that road that m- would make me happy <laughs> or optimistic, and so that that's how I kind of feel about the Ron DeSantis dropout thing. But what what, what how do you feel about it? I feel like you might have a more a more uh, what do you call it like a realigned take, a realignment take. No, I think there's something really interesting about your, what you've said in that, on the one hand, uh, it feels like the last stand for uh, normal politics or for the sort of tradition of uh, American liberalism, small L liberalism. And what's interesting about that is the people who have sort of uh, profited off of picking at the carcass of American liberalism are are arguably what tanked Ron DeSantis's campaign, which are the consultants. And, you know, we can go back and forth on this. Some people say, you know, Ron DeSantis could have had super based consultants, um, as, you know, some conservatives would demand. And he would, and I think he should have, you know, I don't think Jeffro was a horrible choice. Uh, I don't know Jeffro, but I, I think his track record uh, should have given them, um, you know, an, a, a better idea of, of how this would would end um and you know the the consultant vultures were a huge part of his loss whether or not ron DeSantis, you know was a perfect candidate which he obviously wasn't even though he had so much momentum it allowed people to think maybe he was the perfect foil to trump and the perfect candidate to an extent uh that he wouldn't be there was nothing he could have done about the lawfare um and so that's a another separate conversation but you if you look at rcp's average between trump and DeSantis, uh, donald trump started uh, the, the gulf between the two of them so where DeSantis's numbers are going down and trump's are going up actually came before DeSantis even launched his campaign. So again, that means he could have run a perfect campaign, um, but he still would have had to reverse that trend. It, it started when the lawfare started, like almost exactly, actually exactly, um, like basically to the day, uh, as far as we can tell with polling. So 
that said, your liberalism point is fascinating because I think um, what's illiberal is to you know, be on the side of Joe Biden. Um, and I'm using David French as an example. I have no idea what he says about Joe Biden or whether he's voting for Joe Biden. But you're right. Like the politics uh, is, as usual, the tradition of American small L liberalism um, is not allowing for this global concentration of elite power. And that's ultimately what Republican voters want to see in a candidate. It's it's almost exactly why Nikki Haley um, doesn't resonate with people. And it's, it's something that Ron DeSantis was vocal about. It's something that Trump is vocal about, but people question whether or not he's able to, to execute on it. Um, but I do think that's what, you know, Elon Musk suddenly starting, well, I shouldn't say suddenly, but taking an interest in, in criticizing Davos and criticizing elite corporations for embracing sort of cultural Marxist worldviews uh, to the extent that Rufo and others have documented. You see Elon interact with that. You see Bill Ackman interact with that. You see David Sachs interact with that. Um, that's what people are interested in Ron DeSantis. They said he's a better bulwark than Trump. Uh, he's a wrecking ball. Look what he did in Florida with specific policies uh, that sort of were, you know, you, you pitch a, a DEI scheme at him and he's knocking it out of the park with some novel legislation. And I think people really saw him that way, rightfully so. Um, but the lawfare, I think, basically clouded any of that. But just to sort of bridge the two things we were talking about and, and agree with you completely, I do think, yes, he, he was the stand against crouching illiberalism, even though I think, and maybe you do or don't, um, but just like sort of the perspective of whether or not the Stop Woke Act was perfect. No, I think it went a little too far. There were some things in there that I didn't love. Uh, but David French would pick those things out to say Ron DeSantis was the illiberal one, um, which is absurd. Is absurd um, to say because this this uh, opposition to illiberalism isn't perfect. It too is illiberalism, I and mean, it's just so stupid. Um, but I do think, and as you're a hundred percent right, that he felt like uh, really a, one of the last best hopes for stopping uh, the rise of illiberalism from the left and from the global elite. I mean, I think a lot of people see Trump as the embodiment of that. Uh, bulwark that you're talking about against essentially this takeover, institutional takeover. I, because Trump sees everything, and this is his great weakness to me, um, it's both a strength and a weakness because, I mean, obviously his personality is magnetic and draws people to him. And there's something to that being uh, sort of. <laughs> A, a feature that people choose in their leadership, whether it's democratic or not, over and over and over again, for probably good reason. Um, but I, I feel like Trump, because of who he is, because it's so personal for him, um, again, for good reason, they did come after him, like in a very direct and obvious and illegitimate way for four years. And then when he left office as well, um, that's what this lawfare represents and I think to, to a lot of his voters and I think they're right um but this requires when you're talking about let me let me back up when you're talking about actually the most fundamental norms of the country which have been destroyed and flouted particularly in the case of Trump in order to get Trump right we have uh generals in communication with America's greatest global enemies to circumvent the American president. B 
because that power was applied so directly to him and because of Trump's personality himself, he's not like a circumspect person. <laughs> um, he doesn't tend to think, you know, 10 steps ahead or anything like that. I think he really does live life by the seat of his pants and it's worked well for him so far. Um, but it seems to me that there is a very, very delicate problem, which is how to essentially extract extract this ideology, extract uh, a certain number of people, uh, but more importantly, the best practices and the ideology from institution after institution without leaving nothing in your wake, right? Without leaving like just flattened institutions and nothing to replace them in your wake. And if I think about who's more likely to be able to, to perform what I see as that very delicate task of essentially trying to revive a traditional American form of governance, not, you know, forget about what the founders would have, have, I mean, they're so, we're so far off from their vision at this point that that's, that's almost a, but let's say to extract something that looks like would be comprehensible and recognizable as an American regime to people in, you know, 1945, right. To, to pull something like that back out of, our institutions, as corrupt as they are now and as ideological as they are and as set against their basic purpose as they are now, is to me, is a, a task that does require a scalpel and not like a wrecking ball. And I wonder what will happen because, it, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to vote for Trump. Like, I think he is going to be that wrecking ball. You heard it here and first. The question is, and the question is what happens after that because in, in a similar way as the left has been courting serious disaster by imagining that 75 million trump supporters will evaporate if they just get trump i think we also will court disaster if we imagine that the people who hate trump uh and are like hysterical about him will evaporate if he like fires all of the you know everybody in washington dc um I think we are teetering on the edge of something very, very nasty. I don't even want to say civil war because I don't think it's even that simple, but like low level street, political street violence, the uh, real separation between red states and blue states in terms of, of uh, ties and like um, overlap and, and any kind of common feeling as a nation. Right. I, I don't think this is going to be red states marching against blue states. It just doesn't, that doesn't really align, but to me, but I, I, I don't know. I don't see anything good in that direction. Um, and I'm hoping that that's still a future that we can avoid. And I think we're less likely to avoid it with Trump than we would have been with somebody who's a little more careful, even as he's demonstrated that he's, you know, very serious about fixing the rot in these institutions like DeSantis. Yeah. I was one of the many people like in professional conservative spaces like you that had pretty much exactly the same take on the viability of the country under DeSantis versus the viability of the country under Trump, because Trump does have um, some legitimately problematic instincts for all of the good. There also come so many distractions and, uh, frankly, you know, flirtations with uh, a liberalism of its own, even if it uh, is dwarfed by the illiberalism of uh, his opponents who project all of their worst fears about liberalism onto him. Um, and I think what, one thing you said, you know, I'm, I was thinking as you were talking about like how the very 
worst response, the most terrifying response to January 6th actually came to pass, which is let's censor more people. Let's marginalize more people. Um, and I think that's why, you know, those folks who are like on the right but don't work in professional politics looked at Ron DeSantis uh, sort of, again, flirting with criticisms of Trump on the lawfare stuff when obviously the bigger story is the lawfare itself. Um, you know, those sound bites weren't handled well just on a campaign like comms level, uh, whatever DeSantis did. I mean, it wasn't an easy thing to deal with, but that wasn't handled well. But I think that's why like regular uh, right of center conservative voters look at Donald Trump and say, I can't even think about voting for anybody else at this point. And some people, you know, maybe did think of the idea of Ron DeSantis, but then as the lawfare started piling up, they were like, he has to be the one um, because there's no way a career politician, even if it's Ron DeSantis, uh, even if it's you know, someone as likable as Ron DeSantis, but there's no way a normal politician uh, is going to be able to stand up to these unstoppable uh, forces uh, that just want to destroy the country and are doing it so quickly and and see all of us as extremists that are infiltrating Catholic parishes uh, just for the the sin of being orthodox um, and and associating that with white nationalism. I think all of that just it makes me completely empathetic uh, to 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 people who are magnetically attracted to Donald Trump, um, even though, you know, I'm not, I, I agree with your assessment of the DeSantis situation. Um, but at the same time, I get it. I look, and, and here I'll, I'll, I'll criticize DeSantis cause I don't think it's, um, I think it's letting him off easy to say that, uh, his sound bites or whatever around that around the lawfare were not handled well. Mm -hmm. I, I think it reflected a genuine ambition, uh, ambivalence, which makes sense. Because in a, he's in running a race. against the guy, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but I think what was required in that moment, and I wish he had said, was simply, no, like, no. He should have said, this is appalling. This is well beyond, yes, I'm an opponent of this guy, and I think I can do a better job than him, but this is a totally unacceptable and illegitimate way to conduct politics. Uh, and he should have said, and I hope to to beat Donald Trump legitimately, uh, for your vote in the Republican primary, and if I do, I'll pardon him. I, to me, that was the obvious mm -hmm. way. To, it's it, it is exactly distinguishing legitimate politics and disagreement and political battles from the illegitimate uh, way that that Trump has been treated. Like it's completely and pe I don't understand why it's so difficult for people, both on the left and the right, to like distinguish those two things. You can say that Trump was the worst president ever. I, I think he was a pretty good one, but I could imagine really hating Donald Trump as a man, as a president, and still being able to say, hey, it's really bad that his generals were talking to China without him. That's yeah. not the way that we conduct and decide who's a good and bad president or who gets these powers in the American system. That's not for you to decide. Mm -hmm. You know, That's not for that general to decide. What legitimacy does he have? All of his legitimacy comes through the person of the president that he's now I, circumventing. Yeah, I was I wrote that he should have basically run the campaign 
when it came to Trump, just on the Trump question specifically, that Vivek Ramaswamy ran. Uh, because I think Vivek, uh, you know, listens to, he's sort of in the milieu of, um, you know, people who who make the argument that you just did. And that was 100% more effective. And then you'll have the sort of estab political establishment being like, well, Vivek didn't do very well. It's like, that is not evidence at all that it wasn't a better way to handle the Trump question. A lot of Vivek people who are coming to Vivek events just voted for Trump. And, you know, people will say, well, okay, so if you graft that take to Trump onto Ron DeSantis, is he more powerful? Well, yeah, of course he is, because he's an effective sitting governor, not a guy who's never uh, held elected office before or not a, you know, guy who hasn't been the host of the Celebrity Apprentice, like a random person with low name recognition, uh, who's basically running a social media campaign. No, Ron DeSantis is a sitting governor with a huge war chest, tons of money, tons of interest from donors, uh, even as that waned. So yeah, I think it would have made a huge difference if he had approached it in exactly the same way, because that uh, speaks to this primal uh, sense of dread that voters, especially voters on the right, have about how the powers of the state are being weaponized against a political enemy. Uh, and, and it's not that Ron DeSantis is wrong to say that that would be a distraction from Trump governing effectively. I think that's probably a good argument to make when you're bogged down in these personal attacks. Um, you know, you're just going to fixate on them because they could put you in prison. They could put your family in prison um, and they involve you directly. So I don't think it's it's an invalid argument. Um, but I do think, yeah, you're right. And it just it made it. That's one of those things that voters just sort of immediately are like that's disqualifying. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's funny because it really does require not listening to. Consultants, political uh whatever chattering class type people. And, you know, I'm, I'm not like, I, look, I, I don't advise political campaigns for very good reason. Um, Cause like, I don't know that my recommendations would be any better than any of these people's, but it did strike me that all of the analysis around his decisions with regards specifically to this stuff and whether he directly attacked Trump or not, Everyone was constantly saying, well, he has to attack Trump. He's running against him. He has to, like, say, you know, and I don't, I, I don't know. I, I, if, if that's true, I at least wouldn't take it as an unexamined premise. What, what, what would have happened if Ron DeSantis had basically said, you know, first of all, made that sharp distinction. There are ways to run against someone uh, legitimately and illegitimate ways to try to take them out of the political process. And then it just said, yeah, like, I think a lot of things Trump did were great. Thought he was a, a really good president. I think he had several really key weaknesses that turned out to be really important. And that's why I think I'd be better at him. And that here's my agenda. I don't, it's, it's treating people like adults. It's not just a quote unquote horse race. It's treating people like adults and saying, yeah, I know, I know you like this guy. That's the reality of the Republican primary going in. So you have to, Yeah. I like this. I know you like this guy. There's a lot of stuff I like about him too. Here's some things I think he really screwed the pooch on. And COVID was like top of the list for Ronda, Ronda Santos on that. Right. Um, but also, you know, I think I can do a more effective job actually getting some of these things done. I think that was his best pitch. Now, would it have worked? I don't know. Um, but I don't think it would have, but it would have been better. I, it also wouldn't have totally destroyed him. I think his like, opinion of him in in the eyes of a lot of Trump supporters although maybe that's impossible with Trump like being totally himself like totally illegitimately attacking DeSantis like 
pretending that he's like an establishment hack or that, you know, his agenda is is uh, not conservative enough, which is absurd because it's to the right of Trump's, right? Um, it Anyway, I'm, I'm not sort of defending Trump's behavior, but I feel like it's all baked in with Trump. Um, and if you're trying to offer yourself as an alternative, then you should probably improve on, on Trump, at least in that regard. But um, no, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if there was any way for him to win this, but I do think that it is. it was a really important moment for him, that turning point with the lawfare. And if he had come out really strongly, essentially saying, yes, in the realm of politics, where I'm running against him, I have all kinds of criticisms of Donald Trump. If if in the realm of sort of this illegitimate lawfare that's being waged against him, I'm completely on his side and I'll do everything I can to make sure uh, that he's victorious in that battle up to and including I will pardon him if I beat him fair and square in this primary and I win the election, I will pardon him because this is totally illegitimate and out of bounds. Well, it's what you said. It's the the reason voters um are are completely on board with that argument is they have this sinking sense of of dread about watching the country they love and that you know afforded them opportunities just go away like fade into the night um and a lot of that is starting to see weaponization and if you talk to Cubans, Venezuelans, who are starting to have even more Republican voting patterns. Um, you know, on the one hand, there's some reporting that they see in Donald Trump uh, a, a sort of uh, uh, Latin American strongman. Yeah, the, uh, that's been some of the reporting. Um, but on the other hand, you get the reporting that it's like, well, actually, we've seen what this happens, and we've we've seen when this happens before. We've seen when. Um, the intelligence apparatuses um, and the oligarchs are weaponizing their powers against average citizens and their freedoms are being curbed. Their voices are being curbed, whether that's media suppression or uh, the, the sort of undermining of elections and the integrity of elections, all of that. Uh, so, again, yeah, I mean, people just don't think it's possible uh, for Ron DeSantis to reverse these trends because they are so dramatic, even though, again, and as I think, you know, you're, I agree with you. I just, I, when the I look at the polling and I see that the lawfare is when Trump started to pull away from Ron DeSantis, from Ron DeSantis I think it's just like people say he's the, he's the only one because he is so, because um, he's Trump. He's the guy that was hit with all these lawsuits. That must mean he was uh, the most effective which means he needs to be the most effective and sent it again. Uh, whether or not that logic is true can be debated, but I do think it resonates with a lot of people. Yeah, no, there's there's no doubt that it does. Um, and I mean, Trump's Trump's going to be the Republican nominee, uh, barring some kind of horrible thing happening to him, which I really hope for his sake it doesn't, and also for the sake of the country. Because can you imagine if Trump had a heart attack? Like no one would believe it was a heart attack. It would I, be a disaster for the. It would be an actual disaster. That's the problem when you have a system where people's participation and and granting of legitimacy to the political system is hanging by a thread. Yeah. Um, that's why I said before the twenty twenty uh, election. I said uh, I can't remember if it was on this podcast or somewhere else. I said, you know, the best thing for this country one way or the other. Obviously, I have a preference as to which way it goes, but I hope that it's a landslide. Um, and of course, it wasn't. And a lot of the mistrust 
uh, has spiraled out of that. But yeah, you know, this the, we <laughs> for the sake of the country, I really, I hope, I wish Donald Trump really wonderful health and uh, just just a uh, lots of n- no pudding cups, no like wandering episodes, <laughs> and definitely no adverse medical events. But this is what's so again. It reminds me so much of January 6th, the response to January 6th, um, which we wh- whatever you think of the federal involvement, we know based on reporting from The New York Times, some like 20 um, informants at least uh, embedded on January 6th. So whatever we think about that, um, the bottom line is it was used as a pretense to crack down on people's civil liberties um, and to to paint a big swath of the country as as extremist, and you know it's true that the people who stormed and rioted in the Capitol were uh, acting as political sh- extremists, and and that was a radical thing to do. There's no question about it. But using that to then paint, uh, you know, the entire group of Trump supporters or whatever Hillary Clinton says, people need a formal like deprogramming. Um, it's the same thing with the ends of all the lawfare, which is that they hope they're crossing their fingers and hoping that Donald Trump ends up in prison. Um, and that if they can prove insurrection, they can get him on the 14th amendment removed from the ballot. They can keep doing these things and it's going to end with Donald Trump being disqualified or in prison. And that's as far as they think. Like that's, that's as far as they go. They don't think, okay, so what happens the next day? Do we get January 6th every day from there on out? Because people feel like uh, the country is being stolen and taken away, taken away from them. And again, it's not to justify violence at all. It's just to say, you know, it's going to happen if you continue to overstep the, the boundaries of uh, your constitutional authority, uh, whether you are the Department of Justice, whether you are uh, an oligarch, whether you are uh, a a journalist, whatever it is, uh, the the less you deal with why people voted for Donald Trump in 2016, the less you reckon with that, the more likely you are to make more and more people uh, or the the same group of people double down. Uh, you're going to bring more people over to that side, but you're definitely, in all likelihood, but you're definitely going to make people already there double down. And you're going to radicalize people because they don't think there are any nonviolent constitutional mechanisms. And that's wrong, but they don't, you know, it's, it's easy to understand why somebody in, in middle America would feel utterly powerless uh, against, you know, Zuck Bucks or whatever it is uh, going forward, or the, the guy that, uh, uh, president putting his political opponent in prison. You know, it, it's terrifying to think of the day after, and they've never thought that far because they don't want to fundamentally reckon with why people voted for Donald Trump. They just want to uh, smear those people as racists and bigots and and not have to deal with what inspired those those votes they just want to purge the country of Trumpism to deprogram the country of Trumpism and not deal with what put them there. Yeah, it's it's um, look, the left has treated the system as illegitimate since the 1960s, since the new left. Um, and we've seen what's come with that. Uh, there's been many episodes of essentially violence in the streets. The Black Panthers were uh, a group that treated as illegitimate the normal political process of the United States. It's not new on the left. It is new in, at least in the American context, in modern history, it is new on the right to have a substantial number of people who are at, at best one tiny thread away from treating the entire political system as illegitimate. 
for a whole variety of understandable reasons. Um, and I guess that goes, does go back to why I see the, the sort of DeSantis Rufo route as the last off ramp from this. Um, because you have to relieve the pressure of people who are pushed to the wall. And the accelerationists or whatever would say, no, we don't relieve that pressure because we need the system to crack in half. As a small C conservative, I am much more worried about the day after the system cracks in half, even than about our current regime and the, the current way we live. Because again, it can always get worse, guys. Um, and so that's, that's in part, you know, why I, I do believe there is this paradox by which people think that the moderate course is essentially the safest. And I am coming deeply to the opinion, like very strongly to the opinion that the moderate course and continuing the type of things that the Republican party has done for the last 30 years, um, is the most dangerous course because so many people are pushed to the wall and so many people have their trust in the system hanging by a thread that more confirmations of the same um, is the most dangerous and most potentially violent course going forward. And that, in fact, if you had this full pedal to the metal, um, you know, very aggressive campaign to change the way institutions operate in this country in such a way that those 75 million plus people can live with it and feel like at least uh, they are, you know, engaged in a legitimate political process in which they have the possibility of persuading and winning people and winning um, on any of the issues that they care about. That's the less dangerous course. And I think that is what DeSantis is doing in Florida, which is why you talk to Florida conservatives and they're actually like much chiller than everybody else. <laughs> it's like well, the he, opposite. Like, I mean, his, conservatives like me are insane and yes, radical. That's always been true. <laughs> um, because we've seen what handing over all, all the power to the left actually results in in a very concrete way and watch the state that we love disappear functionally like disappear it no longer exists the california i grew up in let alone the california my husband's family you know grew up in for five generations does not exist it, it just doesn't exist anymore um and that's a radicalizing thing whereas i see actually people in florida like yes they still get excised about national politics but day to day they're actually much chiller and much less radical in certain way because they feel that they feel the boot coming off their necks a little bit. And this, it's, the boot on people's necks is crazy making. Well, and Ron DeSantis' approval ratings were not just high uh, among conservatives. Like in, in Florida, yeah. he actually had a really high approval rating in general. And that's because, uh, again, like it, it changed when he started running for president and the media started, you know, treating him in, in a different kind of context. But uh, people actually really liked Stop Woke. They they liked feeling as though there was an adult in charge who was resisting um, some some really radical stuff that, again, the left is not dealing with, uh, even as as Bill Ackman, again, comes to, uh, to side against DEI. Um, that's not quite going far enough or like Elon Musk is 
uh, you know, talking about how he used to, uh, there's a really great honest clip of him being like, yeah, I used to be a Democrat. Like I didn't change. Uh, you know, it's such a common thing that you hear and you hear it not just among Silicon Valley people, but regular Americans. If you, you sit down at a bar, uh, you'll hear the same thing. The party changed. But if you think that and you're still implanting Neuralinks, uh, not just for medical purposes, uh, but exploring it for other purposes, then yeah, maybe we still you know, have an issue. But I, I think in terms of everyday politics, it's absolutely populist to be uh, a cultural common sense uh, candidate. And and that's what boosted Ron DeSantis. He was he was a common sense and be effective on the culture war. Uh, and it worked really well for him. And I, I don't think his the end of his run for office, you know, not making it to New Hampshire. I don't think that uh, is a reflection on whether or not that's attractive to voters whatsoever. I, I think when you juxtapose it with Donald Trump um, and add a bunch of lawsuits, it's not surprising at all that people are still siding with Donald Trump. Um but I think the future is still more similar to DeSantis. I, I don't think we got, you know, a good answer to the question of whether or not that's true. Um, I think the best answer still was before the presidential primary. Well, on on that note, um, wrapping it all up from tech to uh, to politics uh, here with Emily Jashinsky, as always, uh, she's always with us on High Noon, um, the last Wednesday of each month. So every other Wednesday, you can find her at CounterPoints uh, and you can find her at The Federalist, where she's the culture editor, and she's a fellow with us, IWF. So you have seen her around. I list her her various hats every time, um, but you should you should really check out uh, not just her commentary, but but her writing when she puts decides to actually put pen to paper. Uh, there is no better cultural sort of commentary on the right, in my opinion. And uh, she loves to write about TV shows and stuff, and also um, about about. The relationship of politics to real world problems and so anyway check out all of emily's um emily's work really highly encourage that and that thanks so Emily, nice. for coming back yeah that's the nicest that thing i've so ever nice. said to you that was beautiful thank you though really that was very nice of you <laughs> and thank you to our listeners high noon with you stepman is a production of the independent women's forum as always you can send comments and questions to me inez.stepman at iwf.org please help us out by hitting the subscribe button leaving us a comment or review that really helps to boost the podcast i really appreciate it when you do that um, on apple Podcasts, acast google play youtube or iwf.org be brave and we'll see you next time on high noon